connection to your phone tonight. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and I'm all alone in the studio because we got a special episode today. A couple weeks ago, Indiana Sciences invited us back to Gen Con to talk about the science behind some of our favorite sci-fi and fantasy games. Of course we had to answer that call. It's one of our favorite things to do every year as podcasters. And for me as a person, it's so much fun get to talk about sci-fi and fantasy and nerd stuff in front of people and have rapturous applause. So we're going to bring you that right now. Through a really awesome podcast that you should subscribe to at Science Night. They're going to tell you all about it. Um, but I'm going to stop talking until the end. I'll come back in and walk us out. But Let's give a giant round of applause for Science Night. Yeah, so we just have to do one quick correction. We are absolutely for-profit, and we will be plugging our merch later in this, uh, in this event, so I didn't want anyone to think we were too altruistic. Uh, but we are... The... Oh, whoa. whoa. There you go. Spoilers. We're the Science Night Podcast. It's very creatively named. We do talk about science, and it typically is at night. So you can see where we came with that. Um, my name is James. I am one of the co-hosts. I am an anatomist, but I'm mostly like a video gamer and a podcaster. These are like the two real scientists to my left and right. And I'm going to let them introduce themselves. So we have Steffi. Hey. Um, I'm a professor at a Big Ten University. I do fusion energy research, nuclear engineering. Um, I have a PhD in plasma physics, undergrad in nuclear engineering, and I do a lot of different things. Show off. (laughs) (laughs) And we also have Jason. I also am a professor at a Big Ted institution, one here in town, but I'm not going to tell you which one it is. Um, I am also an anatomist. Although my area of expertise is in evolutionary biology and life sciences, and uh, I'm also a fencer. So if you get a chance, check out the Indianapolis Fencing Club demonstrations. They're they're doing one tonight, tomorrow, um, on long swords and saber fencing. Really cool stuff, fun to watch, and um, I don't do any of that stuff. I'm like a really puny sword fencer. (laughs) Not the cool stuff. So our podcast is about science communication. We cover science news, events, we talk to scientists about what they do, and what they do when they're not doing their sciencey work. So, so we have a lot of fun with that, but we do cover quite a bit of science fiction, fantasy, and just whatever we feel like doing. In our back catalog, you can hear Jason rant for at least 15 minutes about how baseball is dead. It's true. Baseball is dead. Yeah. <laughs> So that's what we're doing. But tonight, we are talking about the science behind two of my favorite video games, Portal and the Fallout series. If no one has, yeah, we have some some people that have heard of these two obscure indie games, right? (laughs) So absolutely, spoiler alerts, I guess, if you've never played either of these games that have been out for decades at this point. Um, But... You know, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. 
And we're going to start with Portal. Portal is a lot of things. It's a puzzler. It's so much fun. But really, it's the story of Aperture Sciences and its enigmatic leader, Cave Johnson, right? We all remember the J.K. Simmons fun little things that you can find throughout it. But basically, this is a tale as old as time. It's a defense contractor that starts by selling shower curtains, just like you'd expect. They always start that way, right? Shower curtains? Uh, usually. I think, I think Halliburton did start with shower curtains, if I remember correctly. You know, I, I'm not too big in the lore of actual right. uh, military contractors in the real world, but it's a little bit Seems like a shower curtain is useful for Blackwater, I'm just saying. Mm. Well, we're going to step far away from that. Right? <laughs> and back into the world of fiction. Um, yeah, but basically, Cave Johnson was like, these shower curtains, we, we can do better than that. So they started a couple things. They, they did a tiered structure. One was the Take-A-Wish Foundation, where they took wishes away from people who had terminal diseases, and that didn't go so well. The other was something called the Reverse Heimlich Maneuver, which was actually choking people. Um, <laughs> And then they did this thing that we're like, ah, I don't know if this is gonna make money or not, but we have this thing where we can create portals that will transport you from one side to the other. Do you think the defense industry is gonna be into that? And they were. They were very much into that. Uh, so we're gonna get into what Cave Johnson's kind of end was in a little bit. But I think like what this game really is, is a physics simulator. And we, we just happen to know a little bit about physics with, with Steffi here. We don't say we. This is where, this is where, this is where Jason we. and I just stand I over and... I think the fun stuff. Yeah, we, Jason and I are like, yes, those are words that are happening. <laughs> and we'll do the life sciences stuff later in the show. So Steffi, I'm going to let you take Sure. That. We're going to just kind of jump right in to those portals, right? Okay, so if you've played the who's played the game before? Okay, okay, nice. good. We've got a lot of people. We got requests last year, actually, to do portal. That's why we're back here this year. So you create one portal and you go out the other, right? So you go in the blue one, out, or sorry, in the red one or the orange one, out the blue one. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the physics. How could this actually happen? So I'm going to start with wormholes or Einstein erosion bridges, right? So you can, these are ha what happens when you have a bridge between two points in space-time, uh, the space-time continuum. We can look at it from this sense, where you have a black hole at the entrance and a white hole at the exit. These are just singularities, and they suck up matter and energy. And when they're doing that, these space-time is so warped during the mouths of these entrances to these portals, these singularities, there's really no way to survive that. Um, you're going to be stretched out through that process, or you sometimes call it spaghettification. Yeah. That is the best I, word. Right? You know, actually, spaghettification also happens in the human body, but it's weird because the, uh, the white hole is the front part and the, the exit is the black hole. <laughs> Yeah, you're not going to survive that. No. No, not in this black so. hole. I don't think so. There's, there's other black holes out there, right? 
You know, there is my favorite black hole in the history of black holes uh, called Scary Barbie. Uh, yeah. Somehow the acronym kind of spelled out Barbie, so they're like, it's Scary Barbie. We're doing it. That movie's coming out this summer, and we're going <laughs> to put science into it. It's hot pink. Yeah, and you can see it spaghettifying a star by like pulling it into the black hole. It is the most metal thing in science. You and it's real. Scary Barbie is real. I mean, That's I super massive black hole. I haven't seen the movie No, yet, no, so I'm, I'm talking about the actual physical <laughs> super massive black hole yeah, it is that real. we actually observed. Right? This well, I, I yes. did not observe it. Okay, who's seen, who's seen the Barbie movie? Okay, we got some people. I'm not going to spoil it too much for those that you, you know, maybe you haven't. But this is where sometimes I talk about the background for this podcast with my spouse while I'm walking my dogs and I talk about the physics of portal. And then he's like, and I'm talking about how does Barbie get from Barbie land to the real world, right? And then he's like, you know what? Let's jump to fantasy, to Brandon Sanderson in Three Realms. And that's how it's going to happen. So that's just a teaser for you to read that series. There you go. Okay. Just a glimpse into my real life, too. Okay, so now I'm gonna go into another alternative for the portal, right? We talked about wormholes, how the, the, those, those, I would say they're not really possible. You're gonna get torn to shreds, right? Let's go back to the name of the company, or the, actually the, the device. Um, it's Aperture Science Portable Quantum Tunneling Device. So that suggests it's not really wormholes after all, it's gonna be quantum physics, it's gonna be quantum tunneling. So if you're not familiar with quantum tunneling, this says that a particle can overcome a barrier by the principle of quantum uncertainty. So this is when you have like electrons or atoms that can pass through a potential barrier that seems insurmountable, but because of quantum uncertainty, they can actually do it. Um, and so, if you go back to how particles are described in quantum physics, it's through a wave function. This is like a mathematical description of the quantum state of the particles. So it's essentially a probability function in that case. And now we're going to go into that uncertainty principle that I mentioned. This states really that you cannot know both the position and the speed of the particle without perfect accuracy. So the more you know about the position of the particle, actually the less you know about the speed, and vice versa. Um, so if we go back to a particle approaching a barrier, like a wall in portal, um, you're gonna have the highest probability that this particle will be on one side of the barrier, and then it's heading towards the barrier, um, and impacts it, and then when you actually take a measurement, there's a non-certain probability, or non-zero probability, that it'll be on the other side of that wall. So I'm gonna say, in this case, you know, that portal gun is going to be a quantum tunneling gun, or, or array, that makes it possible to overcome these barriers. Um, and then you kind of get the case where, okay, so you're, you're able to go through the wall, but how are you able to go across the room, right? This is where I invoke, you're probably gonna have lensing and mirrors to kind of direct things around, right? And then you have another quantum barrier you have to um, overcome when you go to the other side of the portal. Yeah. So, so this like quantum tunneling thing you're just talking about, that's, yeah. that's, a, that's, a, that's a video game thing, right? That's, yeah. is there real, there's like, is that a real thing? 
Oh yeah, I, it happens in real life. This is what I every time Stephanie talks <laughs> yeah. about yeah. really fancy physics stuff. Like, but it, is it is it a real thing? It, it happens all the time. Sometimes in my basement. Oh. Yeah, in my cool, lab. Cool, so cool. actually, yeah, yeah. this is how fusion energy happens. Um, so in fusion energy, you have two light nuclei that you smash together. They form a larger nuclei, and it releases a lot of energy. Really what's happening at like, the quantum level is you have two positively charged particles that are overcoming this Coulomb barrier, this huge potential energy barrier. And it's actually quantum tunneling that makes them fuse together. So if you look at like the core of the sun or the fusion energy that we have achieved here on Earth, it actually happens at lower temperatures or lower energies than you think from like classical mechanics. And this is because we invoke quantum tunneling in these processes. Oh, yep. that's awesome. I often invoke quantum tunnel tunneling. Um, <laughs> I just don't know where this is going. I, don't I, I just want to step back for a second, Stephanie, and ask you to please clarify what you mean by this is what I do in my basement. Okay, <laughs> okay. so I, I run a fusion energy experiment in the basement of my building at my university. It's actually one of the largest fusion energy programs or university programs in the U.S. Um, we use magnets to confine fuel hotter than the, the, sun, the temperatures of the sun. Yeah. That yeah. is so relieving. Yeah. <laughs> it's starting to sound a lot less like the flash. <laughs> and um, I'm happy with that. But not entirely unlike the flash, right? Right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So now we're going to go a little bit, a, a little bit more about, um, the uh, portals too, because I'm going to talk about like fundamental laws of physics, so and how they kind of follow these quantum, these conservation laws. Um, first is the conservation of mass and life. Um, you cannot create or destroy matter. So in this game, anything that enters a portal will exit a portal. Conservation of mass. The other is conservation of momentum. And momentum is the mass times the velocity, which is a vector quantity. A vector is just like the um, how fast it's going, and it's directional. So in this game, for quanta, for conservation of momentum, it's the instantaneous speed or sorry velocity as it's entering and exit is conserved. Once it's exiting the portal, that's where you uh, gravity takes over. Um, you can do really cool things in this game where you normally can't jump to a portal because it's high enough. You can actually put portals down below and use gravity to accelerate down into the portal and it'll shoot you out with a higher speed. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's, pretty amazing. That's my favorite thing to do. <laughs> yeah, just right? put them opposite each other and just continue on forever. Yeah. Endless loops. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the other thing I'm going to talk about really quickly is ray tracing. It's kind of the how they follow light around in the game. Um, and they just, they, I can't remember what year they released the ray tracing option, where you actually get higher definition of light in the game. And so if you look at rays of light bouncing around in our room, it's going through multiple reflections. The surfaces have texture to them, and their light rays are bouncing off of them. If you look at the left-hand side, it's what Portal used before. They didn't, it, what it looked like before they had ray tracing to follow those individual rays of light around. Um, and on the right-hand side, you can see that's where they're actually turned on the ray tracing 
um, physics module for that. And you can see that vibrancy that you see in real life. Um, things are just more in depth, um, more details. Um, this is where I show a little glimpse of my paper <laughs> that I did, because actually what I do besides magnetically confined fusion is I work on how do you heat it up to really high temperatures. And so I model microwaves going through um, the fuel for fusion, and it's not just as simple as like uh, modeling light bouncing around through air, which has a constant density. The fuel for fusion is like super, super hot, millions of degrees, and that's when matter enters the plasma state. And so for that, you have electrically charged particles moving around, and you have to be much more careful about how you're following things through that medium, because it gets much more complex. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things you can see in this ray tracing is just how like cool the walls look now that there's actually like light. Now that there's actually light definition around them, and I think we got to talk about like what's on these walls that make these portals happen, because they're not just like normal walls. They have moon dust like all over them, which seems like a fake thing because it's a video game where you're shooting portals around everything. But here's the thing about moon dust, like it's really weird. I thought it was just going to be crushed up rocks, and it kind of is. But it's crushed up rocks that have been bombarded with solar radiation and stuff and are ionized and fun. Well, not fun. But that brings us back to Cave Johnson. I said we were going to get back to Cave Johnson. And here's where we get into the realm of what I have in my basement, which is just a lot of dust. Uh, <laughs> Me too. Uh, it's not from the moon necessarily, but, you know, you work with what you got. Uh, and I just wanted to show these images to illustrate how like powdery this is, and it looks like it would be this soft substance, but really it is just like very, 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 very small, but still very sharp and rocky particles of rock, and it gets everywhere in space. So you might argue that, oh, the astronauts that are walking on the moon are in their cute little spacesuits, so they don't have to worry about that. But uh, we can look at one of the astronauts from the Apollo 17 mission, and if it comes through in the picture, I don't know, but the spacesuit he was wearing was like white and spacesuit colored when he went out, and it is just like filthy after one lunar walk. It is all over his face, and this was a big problem in the Apollo missions because they were breathing that moon dust in, and they saw problems, obviously, with their respiratory health, but then they would get other like cardiovascular problems and some neurological problems. And if we think about Cave Johnson slowly going insane and talking about when life hands you lemons, uh, we can see that there's actually like some real world things that go with this. And Jason is gonna, Jason and I are gonna talk a little bit about some anatomy here. So what happens when you get like stuff in your lungs? It's not, it's not usually good, right? Not, not usually. Right. I mean, you know, there's uh, some states have passed laws, things that are good to get in your lungs, I guess, but not all. Um, <laughs> but other things in your lungs are not good, especially really sharp, non-wind or water eroded particles, right, that are finely crushed away. And that's the thing that was so shocking to me when I was reading about moon dust, which by the way, that little vial, are you sure that was an angel dust? 
because the way it was stored. I'm not sure. Right. Uh, moon dust, just this, the idea that it's not really powdery at all, it's just so small, but razor sharp and ionized, right? And um, that's like terrifying. So what you can see over here is um, lung tissue that is not healthy. Right, the red stuff—that's what the lung tissue should look like, and all of the darker stuff is is necrotic tissue, dead tissue. Um, and uh, you can also see some X-rays on here um, that show sort of outlines of um, where there are white spots, right? And you can see up the top where there's uh, this X-ray calling it simple silicosis, uh, meaning that it's not really um, deep. It's not—it hasn't destroyed a lot of the tissue. It's just a little bit of tissue. And you can see um, it points both to um, areas on the x-ray at the top here and also to some of the darker spots in the red tissue. Um, and then there's complicated silicosis, which is from repeated breathing, right? Which is what would happen inside of a lunar module um, because there's nowhere for that to go, right? It gets in and it's just gonna get rebreathed, um, or at least until all of that really fine dust gets embedded into the little sacs where the gas transfer in your lungs happens between CO2 and oxygen, we call those alveoli. They're at the end of your bronchioles, right? Um, which are, you know, your bronchi, the, the basic windpipes that get you down, uh, to get wind, uh, air into your lungs, and um, and that's at the ends of those branches, that's where all that gas exchange happens. Um, this fine moon dust gets embedded into those sacs and doesn't get out. And so that's what causes all of this tissue to die. That sounds like a really bad way to go. Yeah. But I have to say, the thing that really I, I just can't get my head around is like Cave Johnson also died of kidney failure. He did. So right. kidney failure is awful, right? I mean, that is not a good thing. Um, basically, you can't filter your blood, um, and so you get this backup of water, right? You're not making urine, and so you slowly drown, right? But a company that can make portal guns can't find a dialysis machine? Well, you know. Yeah, they, they had other things going on. I will say, if you find like the all of the the hidden audio files, uh, you'll find that they did try to like put some portals inside him to get like the silicate particles and whatever was happening out of him. They said there was mixed results, but then Kay Johnson dies soon after. So I don't think that's a very big, I think that's a certain result. It's just not a good one. Uh, but I don't know if we can call that mixed results, right? At that point, I'm not sure. But it's outside my expertise. And I guess I guess we also have to mention that this is you know this is a fun little physics simulator with some like dark sides, but it's also like in canon part of the Half Life universe. So there's some other stuff going on too with extra dimensional beings and and head crabs and that kind of thing. So you know maybe dialysis and the the extra dimensional apocalypse. That's fair. That's yeah. fair. So. We're going to stop with our talk about Portal, with the end scene from Portal 2. I didn't want to go too far because, you know, just in case somebody hasn't played this game from many years ago, that's really good and almost everyone's played. We'll but. be back with more of the science of science fiction presented by Indiana Sciences. But first, a message from a podcast that I think you're going to enjoy. Hi, friends. Cameron here. I host a bi-weekly podcast called Nature is Gay that explores themes of sex and sexuality and gender expression across the natural world. We talk about pseudocopulation and sociosexual behaviors, asexual reproduction in plants and animals and fungi and every little thing in between. 
It's a great time. I'm a little biased, but I think you should check it out. That's Nature is Gay, available wherever you get podcasts. Fallout. We, we want to we step Sorry. too far. Yeah, yeah. We're going to do Fallout. So with Fallout, there's like a lot of nuclear stuff. There is radiation everywhere. Basically, you are playing a game set in the post-apocalypse of nuclear war. But there's some differences that happen at about the time of World War II from our universe. So that's why you see like these weird giant computers, because they went way into the study of atomic energy instead of the study of miniaturizing electronics, which was kind of the path that our real world timeline and science has done. So that's why you have like super advanced uh, fission and fusion cores throughout the game, but then a tape drive giant size of a house personal computer with a monochromatic little blip screen. So that's the world we're talking about. I'm not going to talk about any of the fusion or fission or physics because I don't know anything about that. But what I do know about is the stuff they were doing at the Mariposa military facility, basically what West Tech was doing. And you see West Tech stuff all over the game. They created power armor, but they also created this fun thing called the Forced Evolutionary Virus, or FEV. This is the Mariposa facility, as you see it in Fallout 1, and it is just littered with super mutants. Super mutants are, humor, are humans that were exposed to this like virus, but really it's basically green goo by the time of the games. Uh, and they underwent rapid evolutionary mutation. So these are humans that were exposed to this virus. In the bottom right, we have the Deathclaw, which if you find at the wrong time with the wrong loadout, it is a very bad thing. Uh, but then by the end of the game, you're like super strong and you can take them out and you feel really great about things. It's one of my favorite arcs in video games. They are when you exposed the extremely ferocious Jackson's chameleon, which is just like a little chameleon, to the forced evolutionary virus. And then above is abominations, and that's kind of when you expose things of unknown origin. Basically, they just had to create a really creepy looking uh, person, monster, enemy. Uh, but it, the thought is that it is dogs and human DNA kind of like mixed together and forced to evolve. And I gotta say, like, this is exactly how evolution works. You expose <laughs> DNA to like this juice, and then you get like these cool characters. It works exactly like that one to one. One exposure, one new evolved thing. Alright, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut you off there. James, I appreciate that. Um, that only works in Pokemon. It's okay. You know, because it works really well in Pokemon. It does work very well in yes. Pokemon. Yes. Yeah, but that's not how evolution works. Um, evolution really works um, in mysterious ways. I'm just kidding. It's actually quite prescriptive. Um, evolution is really studied 
at least the kind of evolution that I do, is studied at the intersection of, of evolutionary theory, ecology, and organismal biology. So um, I'm interested in how animals move, I'm interested in the areas that they move in, and I'm interested in um, how they became able to move in those environments. Um, but when we talk about evolution, like a, an individual doesn't evolve, right? I mean, we can grow, right? <laughs> but that's we it. Definitely we can that. grow, right? And you know, colloquially, we can evolve. But evolution is really the change in, in gene frequencies in a population. So evolution doesn't work at the individual level, it works at the population level. So throwing a Jackson's chameleon into a vat of FEV, mm -hmm. right, is not going to evolve that chameleon, it's going to mutate that chameleon into something that is an abomination, even though it's not sure. an abomination, right? So um, we've created a very effective way to give chameleons cancer. Yes, that is correct. Um, like it's Toxic Avenger style, right? Oh, yeah. So, which, again, next year. Toxic Avenger, still a human, right? Right. right. So that doesn't, that doesn't work that way, right? If, think about it this way. Evolution works on um, last year's model. Anybody here like, like muscle cars? I'm not a muscle car fan, but my uncle, when I was grown up, was really into Mustangs, right? And if you look at a Mustang from 1969 and a Mustang from 2000, they don't look the same, right? But if you look at every Mustang in series, you can see the little changes in body style that happen every year. Because as uh, one of my favorite professors told me when I was an undergraduate student, evolution works by tinkering on last year's model. And that's really what it does. It works at the population level to tinker with last year's model, and so each generation can change a little bit, but it's not gonna be that dramatic change. And that's um, what we talk about when we talk about population evolution and sort of this micro evolution, but it also works on a macro scale. Um, it just requires different events to do that, right? And different ways of, of evolving. So rather than changing single genes, they can take entire chromosomes and flip the sequences, or take big chunks of DNA and rearrange it, right? Um, and that we call developmental genetics, uh, and it leads us to um, you know macroevolutionary processes. So you can see things where two species could evolve out of one population, right? Now it's not going to happen in a single generation, but it can happen, right? For example, we share a common ancestor with our closest relative about somewhere in the ballpark of six to 80 million years ago, and that closest relative is the chimpanzee. But we've continued to evolve in our own directions, right? Each population of human, each population of chimpanzee, we don't look the same anymore, but six to eight million years ago, we did. We looked similar. We came from a similar population, right? It's crazy to think about that. That's how evolution works, not by throwing into vats, right? But that is how good, like, B movies are made. So yeah, the best. B the best ones, yeah. right? So, like, I'm all in. Yeah. And you were talking about, like, natural evolution, but humans can kind of, like, put their thumb on the scale a little bit. Oh, absolutely, change right. Change things up. So we've got some examples of that, right? I mean, think about, um, on the left here, we're looking at maize, the evolution of maize, right? I mean, what we eat at the grocery store when we talk about eating corn is not what corn started out looking like, right? And we also know that we can buy all of these different varieties of corn, right? Variety is the spice of life here. It's also the, what is required for evolution to work. You need variation. Um, if you don't have variation, you really can't select for things. 
Um, and that's how evolution would work. That's how the evolutionary processes work. They select the best genes to uh, mitigate whatever environmental obstacle is there. Um, and, and if that animal survives and produces more offspring, it's going to be advantageous, right? And so it's going to continue to get fixed in that population. Um, we have a good example of that in the silver fox experiment out of Russia. That's the picture here on the right. Um, these are foxes that you would find out in the wild, um, but for the last 60, I think 60 or 65 years, something like that, they have been raising them um, in captivity and selecting the most docile individuals and breeding them. And what they have found is that they are still foxes, but they have a lot of behavioral similarities to the common dog, right? To a domesticated dog. And that's awesome. But that's not actually the interesting part. The interesting part is how that manifests in its genome. How are the genes that are being expressed, how are they related to the behavior of these animals? And they've actually found that, um, that in particular, one, um, one protein, one hormone, actually, called oxytocin, you may have heard of it. Um, it's, uh, it's the hormone that actually induces labor in a pregnant person. Um, and so uh, oxytocin also stimulates the production of milk and breasts, right? It's a mothering gene. Uh, it is a softening gene, um, if you want to think of it in a behavioral sense. And it is elevated levels that are off the chart in these wild but selected behaviorally docile foxes. And that's just one example of the physiology and how it can change um, and, and be selected for, right? And so that's... I didn't do that research, I'm not involved in that research, but that's the kind of work that is really the most interesting at the intersection of all of these different biological fields. Yeah, has anyone played the Silver Fox experiment game that's out this year at Gen Con that I tried to get a session for and it was sold out like immediately? And now someone had to, right? One of you must have had yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is, <laughs> it is sold out. Uh, was, was there an oxytocin mechanic? I gotta know. I, no, there was not. I, why would there be? Of course there wouldn't be. <laughs> but that, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's one aspect of the Fallout universe. The other aspect is like all this nuclear physics stuff that is equally fictional uh, in, in real-world ap applications, but we're, we're going to let Steph so talk about this. this what it's it's happening. Fusion? Yeah, exactly. It, man, it would be, oh, that it was like big if that worked, right? Was, yeah. If, if Fusion yeah. worked, it would be big. Yeah. Okay. Come to my lab. I will give you a tour. Um, yeah, so we're going to jump into one of the main themes of Fallout. And I'm going to start by saying that I love to throw themed parties. So when I had, I actually lived in Southern California, and uh, I threw a vault opening party. Super Fallout themed. That, that's actually like my overgrown backyard. And it was perfect to recreate the scene from that game. And those are actually my dogs. The one looking back at you, the Sheltie, her name is Battlestar. She's amazing. Uh, and then on the upper right hand corner is actually a picture of my office at Oak Ridge National Lab. It's a fusion energy division, okay? And I superimposed the fallout stuff because it was already rusty. And outside of a gas-cold reactor that never ran. So, yeah. Never ran again. 
No, actually, they built it and they never ran it. Oh, but it just leads to rust another day. I heard they're taking it down. Um, so that game uh, happens at a company called General Atomics, right, in the Boston area. Um, my party, I was actually working on long-term assignment at General Atomics in Southern California because they do a lot of different things. Um, they do fission stuff, and they also have a, one of the larger fusion energy um, research facilities that's a user facility, so I was working there. Um, I also had really good party favors, like a bloat fly pinatas I made that had, when you hit them, they explode with like green confetti everywhere, and bottle caps, and mini bottles of alcohol, and toothbrushes. So, yeah. Um, okay, now we're going to jump into Come to My Parties. They're amazing. Beautiful, beautiful. That, that, right? is, that is the training of the transition from toothbrushes to fusion cores. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're jumping into fusion cores. And so these are one of the, um, it's a type of ammunition or a battery. Um, they use it in this series. They're pretty small. They're eight and a half by five inches. Very small for a fusion reactor, actually. Um, they treat it like a, a battery of sorts. Um, and before I jump into the physics of fusion, I'm just going to say, if you're going to talk about nuclear batteries, it's not going to be fission or fusion-based. It's going to be fusion fission-based, where you have fission, you have highly unstable large particles that are isotopes that fall apart, and they release heat energy. And that's how you do, you get um, these, the energy from these large, heavy, unstable isotopes break apart, release that thermal energy that you then harness in a battery form, atomic batteries. That's the way some of the spacecraft, actually, like the small rovers, they're powered by nuclear batteries. Going over to fusion, though, you need a lot more mass fusing together, a larger space to actually create the conditions for fusion, and I'll get into those conditions soon. Um, so let's assume you can actually sustain fusion in this thing that's that compact. You have to be kind of creative about what fuel cycle you're going to use. So a lot of our mainstream fusion experiments rely on deuterium-tritium fusion. This is just different isotopes, heavier isotopes of hydrogen that we actually heat up to temperatures 10 times hotter than the sun. Um, out from that... You just um, said that so casually. Yeah. Because yeah. oh, oh. it happens in my basement. <laughs> no, actually, we're a little bit colder than that, but it's only like one or two times hotter than My that. oven gets up to like 500, <laughs> and I get worried. Yeah. Um, yeah, so in this one, out comes a neutron and a heavier or a larger um, particle, helium. Um, this actually generates electricity, or that's what we're trying to harness here right now. 80% of the energy that happens because of that fusing of those particles together um, goes into that neutron that we then put a blanket material around your fusion um, reactor, and you harness the energy from that through a thermal transfer. Um, then 20% of the energy that's released in this process goes back into that, that helium particle, or we call it an alpha particle, which goes back to self-heat the reaction. Um, what is amazing is that once you get it reaching those conditions to actually fuse together, it's, it's what we call ignition or um, a burning plasma, and it's just self-heating and keeps going. Um, so this actually you need to happen on a larger scale than your fusion core. 
because the way that you get the electricity I mentioned is through thermal transfer of that neutron. So that means it's basically a way to replace, um, it's a really cool way to heat up water, to generate steam, to turn turbines, to generate electricity, kind of like what you do for coal right now. Just much cleaner because there's no greenhouse gases coming out of here. And so much cooler. Like, it is. So much cooler. <laughs> like you're creating the sun. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and that's, um, this actually, fusion produces more, like four times more energy per kilogram of fuel than fission. And then nearly four million times more energy than burning oil or coal. So if you think about like how that could transform humanity, if if you could actually harness it, that would be amazing. And I'll talk a little bit later about how you actually can find things that things that are ten times harder than the sun. But now I'm going to go back to that fusion core. Why you keep it that smaller? How they could? Um, I think they'd have to go with an aneutronic fuel cycle. This is where you get to advanced fuels um, because then you don't have to do that energy conversion from heat transfer. So in this case, you look at deuterium and helium-3. You're fusing those particles together, and out of that, you just get charged particles. And then those charged particles can go straight to creating a voltage. So that kind of cuts out. You're just doing direct energy conversion, more compact, cuts things out. That's amazing, right? Because then we don't have to have all that excess material and we don't have to worry about neutron damage. But I worry about neutron damage all the time. <laughs> really? What are you doing? I, don't, well, I can't tell you. It's in my basement, but I'm not going to tell you about it. What is neutron damage? Um, so neutrons are just, they have no charge. So they, when they have a lot of energy and they're moving, they just keep moving till they hit things. And they punch things around. Yeah, like a toddler. <laughs> so don't be one of those things they hit. Don't be a neutron, an energetic neutron. <laughs> yeah. Um, so for these, it, instead of 100 to 200 million degrees, we're talking about 600 to a billion degrees. That's, that's just, just a that's bit. It, right? just, a, just a cool billion right? degrees. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's really hard. That's really hot. Um, now I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the weapons that they use because that's kind of a lot of them are based on plasma, and that's when you heat up gas so hot that you strip the electrons from the nuclei get positively charged soup, and that's the state that the fuel for fusion is in. Um, so they rely a lot on plasma weapons in this game too, um, and the primary damage from these is going to be thermal. Transfer causing serious burns to soft targets. You're also going to get, um, it's also going to be melting things like that. Um, you also worry about um, UV light damage too, because the light emitted from um, plasma is going to range the spectrum from IR to visible to UV. And then the way you can think about maybe how these weapons might work is um, when you're thinking about the mechanics, shooting little things called sphere maps. And just, that just means like little spheres, of little balls of plasma that you somehow kind of spin up and they're turning and whirling around and you're whipping them out of that. Um, that's, and then when they ever they hit something, because you have that plasma spinning and whirling, you're gonna have an electric current that's gonna short out any kind of, I would, like armor suit or things mm. like that. Yeah. The billion degrees isn't going to play a factor at all, right? I mean, I'm looking 
looking at all the avenues. Yeah. So, so, so maybe add a little bit of burning damage too. Because not only do I want to burn things, right? You want to take out the electricity, the power to everything, right? I, Global I, I damage. Don't. I, I don't. <laughs> I mean, it seems like just a shot with a plasma rifle through the heart is going to do the trick. Oh. <laughs> you want to talk about the center of everything, right? Heart. Yep. <laughs> Straight for it. That's right. It's like the sun of the body. Yeah, so I think they're going to shoot little clusters of these super contacting things at right. people. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that's my take on the weaponry in this game. And then I'm going to go a little bit into real life about how we do fusion here on Earth. I mentioned these hot extreme temperatures, but there's a few other things you actually need for controlled fusion here on Earth. There's actually three main things. Um, we call it a triple product uh, or the figure of merit for fusion. Um, this is you need enough density, so enough particles uh, at high enough temperatures. Um, and I talked about it, it's like one to 200 million degrees. And then you need to hold on to them for a long enough time to actually get them to fuse together. And the whole ultimate goal is that you're going to actually produce more energy out than you put into the system. Um, so in the game, here is one of the fusion devices that they have, right? I, if you've played the game, this may be familiar to you. Um, and then this is what a tokamak looks like in real life. This is one of the ways we can find the hot field for fusion. So for this, whenever you apply a magnetic field to these charged particles, the Lorentz force takes over. And that just means a moving charged particle when introduced with a magnetic field will spin around the magnetic field and follow magnetic field lines. So we just create these large magnetic bottles that can find and these particles into a donut-shaped magnetic field. We call that a tokamak. And so this is one in the UK called JET. On the left-hand side, that's actually when they have the plasma inside, they're actually running. On the right-hand side is what it looks like when you're not running. Um, and I actually have a video here, so you can see what it looks like. First of all, the plasma is hot pink because it's deuterium, and that's just the natural light emitting from deuterium when it turns into the plasma state. You can see that it's kind of concentrated a lot of light at the whoa, bottom. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. That doesn't frighten you? Okay. You that? <laughs> so, so that goes back to the triple product, right? You need to have those three things, density, temperature, and time, to actually confine it. If you don't have that, it, it stops it stops confining it. There can be ways when we watch it and we're like, oh no, that's not good. <laughs> that's not good at all. Um, because you can actually get things like uh, disruptions where you have imbalances between the plasma pressure and the magnetic pressure trying to hold it in. Um, and it can hit the wall and melt things. There's also yeah. things that I know I just would, this little thing, right? So. <laughs> um, there's also things that can happen where you have a runaway population of electrons they just reach kind of getting closer to relativistic speeds and they kind of keep kicking around and speeding up. And then they create this electron beam that can hit the wall and damage things. So we do things like machine learning and AI to predict when those imbalances start really early on and change the magnetic fields very quickly to confine that. Um, one of my other things that I did was I um, devised experiments and I did modeling for how do you inject fro frozen fuel pellets to kind of mitigate that before they get too large too. 
So we add a little bit of ice to our, our plasma soup, right? Yeah. Just cool yeah. it down a little bit. Yeah. And then they also threw robotics in there, too, because we have to use re remote handling, kind of like what you do in Fallout, too. Wait, is that to an actual thing? Is that? No. Oh, okay. This is just ice. Like, <laughs> I was like, hold on, there's a Mr. Hand. I superimposed a Fallout okay. robot inside, and it's floating in the air. <laughs> To, treat, so fast. to actually, I know, me too. Maybe, maybe someday. Um, to actually train their robotic arms, they have the um, hand, their remote handlers um, play Jenga because they have to have a lot of precision inside of there. Rufus can make that happen. Yes. Yeah. Rufus <laughs> Come back tomorrow. I'm gonna tell you about it. Nope. And then one. Um, so they do have it happen in um, Boston. There is a device at Commonwealth Fusion Systems. It was in the game Commonwealth Institute of Technology, so you see some similarities there. They're building the Spark Reactor, which should be operating next next two years, and then followed by ARC. Yeah. Yeah. We're making yeah. ARC reactors. It is like right? Ark exactly. It's I, almost yeah. like scientists or sci-fi people too, right? <laughs> I'm gonna lean into the Iron Man reference exactly. <laughs> Um, if you watch the first Iron Man, first of all, if you look at the arc reactor in Iron Man, it looks like a tokamak. If you look very closely, it looks like a small tokamak. If you go back and you watch the first episode, like the first movie, and you see those blueprints print in the opening screen, right? Those are actually blueprints from the TFTR, one of the fusion devices at Princeton Plasma Physics Laboratory, where I did my PhD. Um, so they're actually based, like that imagery is from real blueprints from a fusion experiment. If you want to learn so much more about fusion, we have two really good fusion episodes on our podcast, which is Science Night. You can see it at sciencenight.com. You have made it to the end of another edition of the Science Night Podcast, but don't worry, we got more coming your way, including Season 4 of Science Night coming up so soon. So make sure you follow us on social media so you don't miss when we start doing more releases. If you want to follow me, I'm on the artist formerly known as Twitter at James underscore Reed 3. You can find Steffi anywhere that you can microblog at Steffi Deem and on Instagram at Starshipping. And Jason is on x.com at organ jm follow the podcast at sci night pod on x and science night on threads and be sure to visit our home on the web at scinight.com for links to all our social media, including our TikTok and our YouTube. We got past episodes, the people we talk to, the things we talk about, and our merch. There is so much to see, and you can see it all at scinight.com. We're going to be back in a couple weeks with a brand new episode. But until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz.